0: Scripture reading before the lesson today is taken from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicandor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. If you did miss
1: our fall festival last night, you missed a wonderful evening. For many reasons. One, we had some ministers in the dunk tank. I was not one of them. Because those guys are in their 20s, I'm not. That makes a big difference. And... and for me the dunk tank was especially gratifying because while Ben was in there I went up and on my first throw got him dunked it was a wonderful moment for me but actually the highlight the highlight of the Fall Festival for me was the best trunk I've ever seen it was a Chick-fil-A trunk and they were passing out chicken nuggets now that's the way to a preacher's heart right there And, and if you came to our Fall Festival Edna Bradshaw so graciously invited a fire truck to come visit us. Uh, it's actually an accident, but we had a fire truck visit. <laughs> and the kids enjoyed it seeing and hearing a fire truck. So if you missed the Fall Festival, you missed a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, a, a great job on ben, to Ben for putting that together and, and for those volunteers who took the time to uh, head up different games, different activities. Uh, we, had, we had people doing so many things behind the scenes, and, and, and I don't even know who they all were. But thank you for such a wonderful evening for the, for the kids and for, uh, for those who came and participated and were part of it. It was, it was a great evening. And a great evening capped off by a great win last night. I can't not mention that. So, be praying today. (laughs) If you didn't turn to Acts chapter 6 for our scripture reading, I encourage you to turn there now because we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Acts right there in the first six verses. Now, if you read Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 6, you'll see that we have a situation involving a benevolent program. And whenever I study or or teach from this particular section of Scripture, I typically use it to talk about service, to talk about benevolence, to talk about something in that arena of the church's life. But I kind of looked at this text with 21st century eyes a little differently this time. Because as I look at Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 6, I notice we have a problem arise in the church that if it arose today could potentially split a church. Now, I I don't know how many of you have experienced this. Actually, I want to invite you. If you have ever, I want you to raise your hand, if you have ever been a part of a congregation that went through a church split, please raise your hand. That's a, a pretty good number. If, raise your hand if you were the one who caused the church split. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But there is a significant number of us who have been there, who have experienced that, and it's, it's unfortunate, it's painful, it's saddening. But unfortunately, it is real. Unfortunately, the church is not immune to conflict and tension and even divisions. In fact, you can see those issues begin to arise back in the first century, Paul's going to write to the church in Corinth, and that's a church who has a lot of divisive problems. They have members who are aligning themselves with particular ministers and evangelists saying, I was baptized by Cephas, but I was baptized by Paul. And they're they're pledging their allegiance to these individuals, and it's creating division. You can go over to the book of Philippians, and you have a, a church that has two women within that congregation who are at odds with each other in a disagreement that we don't even know the details about. But it's such a sharp disagreement that Paul has to write to that congregation, tell those women to agree, and invite the congregation to help them work out their differences. So we can see those kind of problems arising in the church in the first century. But here in Acts chapter 6, we have a problem come up that doesn't get so far gone that it splits the church. And I think that's worth investigating today. But before we dive too deep, let me explain what's happening here in the first six verses of Acts chapter 6. The church in Jerusalem has a benevolence program which provides food for widows. And that's a, that's a very laudable ministry when you journey through the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, and you read the, the directions that are given towards, to the church about how it should treat and minister to widows. You realize that that is an important endeavor. That is a godly endeavor. It is a laudable ministry. And what they are doing here is in keeping with the church's spirit of benevolence that you can see going back to Acts chapter 2 when they had all things in common and they were making sure that everyone's needs were being met. So you have this ministry program that is intentional, that is good, that has a strong purpose. But you may have noticed that the text identifies two different types of widows. They are Hellenists and Hebrews. Now, your translation may not use those exact terms, but one translation does use the phrases Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Hebraic Jews were Jews who were native to Palestine. In other words, these are Jewish Christians who grew up right there in Jerusalem or in some other area that is part of the original promised land. And these particular Jewish Christians, they primarily spoke Aramaic, the same language that Jesus himself spoke. And they prided themselves on retaining the customs of their forefathers, particularly retaining some of the Jewish customs that were passed down to them. Not necessarily holding to Jewish doctrine, but Jewish customs. That's the Hebraic Jews. On the other side, you have the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews are ones who lived or grew up outside of Palestine. You have to remember that during the, the, towards the end of the Old Testament, you have this period in which the, the Jews have been deported from the Promised Land. They've been scattered across the nations. And now they're living everywhere. And so these Hellenistic Jews are coming from areas outside of Israel. They grew up in other areas, but have now moved to the Promised Land. They primarily spoke Greek because that was the language of the empire. And they were less tied to the customs of their forefathers. So the difference between Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews is cultural. And the reason there is this mixture of widows in Jerusalem is because Jerusalem was a retirement community. As one commentator noted, it was the dream of every dedicated Jew to retire in the holy city of Jerusalem. And so we have this unique multicultural... I, I, I don't know that this was intentionally happening, but it was happening. And this issue gets brought to the attention of the apostles. There is a cultural divide happening in the way a program is administered. And it's excluding one particular group. That that very easily could split a church if not handled properly. And so this morning, I want you to journey with me through the text of Acts chapter 6. And I want you to notice some things with me that helped this church stay together. That helped the church in Jerusalem navigate a potentially divisive situation in a godly way. And I want to start with this. I believe the Jerusalem church avoided a split because its members spoke up. So if you look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, you see that some of the members complain. That there is reference to a complaint in regards to this particular situation. The text itself says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now I find that interesting. A complaint. See, throughout the New Testament, we're instructed to do all things without complaining in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14. And in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, we're told to be hospitable to one another without complaint. And in those passages, complaining is something you are not supposed to do. The New Testament is decidedly anti-complaining, right? So did these Hellenists do something wrong by going to the apostles with a complaint? I don't think so. I think it's important to note that they are not criticized or condemned for their complaint here. I think the reason they are not criticized or condemned is because they're, they're posing a legitimate problem. The fact that this issue was communicated through a complaint may simply indicate that the way it was communicated was not necessarily the right way, but that does not negate the fact that the issue they were complaining about was a legitimate issue to be brought forth. So what we should take away from the fact that, that the, this issue is spoken about, this issue is brought to the attention of the apostles, what we should take away from this is, is not that those anti-complaining verses should be ignored— But the disciples should not and cannot be silent in the face of injustice. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a repeated expectation that the people of God would be agents of justice. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek Justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were expected to be agents of justice and to care about those who are unjustly treated, to take up their cause. And in the New Testament, that theme is not as prevalent, but it is present. For example, in Luke chapter 11 and verse 42, Jesus criticized his opponents for their failure to be concerned about justice. He says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul instructs believers to think about certain things. And one of the things he says should be on your mind is whatever is just. And then in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul gives instructions to Christian masters. He orders them to treat their servants justly and fairly. And the point is this, that there is a biblical expectation on whatever side of the the Testaments you stand in, there is a biblical expectation that those who are members of God's family will be agents of justice. And that includes being willing to acknowledge and address injustice. So we look at Acts chapter 6 and we start off by seeing that there is this complaint. And right away, our, our mind automatically thinks, well, that's something wrong. You're not supposed to complain. And like I said, maybe, maybe the way this issue was initially addressed wasn't the right way. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there was an injustice being done and it needed to be corrected. And members of the body of, the, of Christ are the ones who brought it up to the leaders of the body of, the, uh, the body of Christ, who pointed it out and acknowledged that something wasn't right. It's very easy for us to be silent. It's very easy for us to be comfortable with status quo and never rock the boat and never say, hey, something needs to be better. But isn't that a responsibility of disciples? To be willing to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves? To be willing to point out when Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. So I think it's very important that we look at this and notice that someone spoke up. Someone pointed out where there was a failure. Someone pointed out where there was a wrong. Someone was willing to acknowledge that something wasn't right. And then as you continue through the story, you'll also notice that the, Congre- the Jerusalem church avoided a split because its leaders listened. Just as important as having the members speak up is having the leaders listen. The leaders in this scenario were the apostles, who are initially identified as the twelve in verse 2. The issue is apparently brought to them, though the details of how and when are omitted. But the important thing to note is that what the apostles The important thing to note is what the apostles did not do. They did not ignore the issue, hoping it would just go away. They did not dismiss the issue as a petty grievance of a few naysayers. They did not turn a blind eye, assuming that the issue was unfounded. They listened. They listened to the complaint, and they took it seriously. Why? Why listen? It's a complaint, right? Why listen? Now, let me pause here for just a second and say, this is not grounds for all of your complaints to be taken to the leaders of the church. Do all things without complaining is still... A statement of Scripture that you can't ignore. But I want you to see the heart of the leaders of the church here. They listened when a legitimate issue was brought to their attention. And why did they do that? Because they cared about the church. Since the complaint was legitimate, as we already discussed, it posed a threat to the unity for which Jesus himself had prayed and those apostles had heard. Go back to John chapter 17 and look at the words of Jesus the night before he is killed. He's praying with his apostles present and he prays this in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, referring to his apostles. I'm not just asking for their sake, I'm also asking for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus prayed for the church to be united to each other, And for the church to be united with him and the Father. And he indicated that that twofold unity would serve as irrefutable evidence of his divinity. When he said, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, he was saying that the church's unity would be evidence that he is the Messiah. But the discrimination that intentionally or unintentionally existed in this food distribution program was a threat to that unity. And, it was, and if it wasn't corrected, then it could split the church along ethnic lines and Jesus' prayer would be forfeited. So the apostles, in their wisdom, were quick to listen here. And I think that's worth pointing out because the apostles repeated this. A few chapters later, we'll get to Acts chapter 15. And there's another issue That has some cultural implications that are brought to the apostles. It's an issue of whether or not Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the Lord's church. There's some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who went up to the city of Antioch that has a huge Gentile population. And they started telling the Gentile Christians at the church in Antioch that they would have to not only be baptized. To enter the church. But they're going to have to be circumcised too. And Paul and Barnabas, as representatives of the church in Antioch, went to Jerusalem to meet with representatives of the church in Jerusalem in the presence of the apostles to, to deal with this doctrinal issue. And the apostles listened, they listened. To Paul and Barnabas plead their case. They listened to Peter, one of their own, tell his experience with Cornelius and his household. They listened. And they came to the decision to not require Gentile converts to be circumcised. You see, it's vitally important that members are willing to speak up. Not to complain, not to be petty, not to murmur, not to just groan, not just to cite their petty problems, but to stand up for what is right in the eyes of God. But it is just as important that the leaders of the church Listen. And that's demonstrated in these apostles here. But those aren't the only two contributing factors to the successful navigation of this dilemma. The next thing you need to notice is that the Jerusalem church avoided a split because its leaders delegated. Did you notice how the apostles handled this situation? The first thing they do Is delineate their priorities. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Instead of saying it is not right, the New American Standard Version and the New King James Version says it is not desirable. And that is probably a more appropriate way to translate this. Because the point the apostles are trying to make is not that it would be a sin for them to serve tables. Instead, they're saying that it would not be pleasing to God for them to stop preaching in order to serve tables. As one commentator said, this is a priority choice about observing the call of God versus a moral choice of right and wrong. The apostles are prioritizing what God has called them specifically to do. To proclaim the good news. And that's the mark of godly leadership. The ability to keep first things first. When it comes to the leaders of the church today, what is their primary responsibility? The primary task of church leaders is to watch out for the souls of those under their oversight, as Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 indicates. The leaders of the church today are typically referred to as elders, but I think another biblical title for them is more useful because it calls attention to their primary responsibility, and that term is shepherd. The primary task of church leaders is, as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's the church leader's primary responsibility today. What does shepherding include? Shepherding includes protecting the flock from predators. If you go over to Acts chapter 20, as Paul is giving instruction to the elders, to the shepherds in Ephesus, he specifically talks about the, the false teachers that will try to invade the church. And so shepherding includes protecting the flock from the false teachers and divisive proponents. Shepherding also includes ensuring that the flock receives an adequate diet, ensuring that they are receiving spiritual nourishment, both in the form of of, of teaching and preaching, but also through pastoral care. And finally, shepherding includes keeping individual members of the flock from straying away. Just as the shepherd shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep went looking for the one straying member of his flock, so too are the shepherds of the church responsible for pursuing straying members of the body of Christ. If you don't realize it, that's a daunting task. That's not a task for everybody. And so we can say that the primary responsibility for shepherds is to provide spiritual nourishment and spiritual protection. But in order for them to accomplish that, shepherds must be able to delegate. And if you look at what the apostles do here in Acts chapter 6, they empower the congregation. Look at what they said in verse 3 of Acts chapter 6 after saying it's not right for us to to give up our our primary task in order to handle this, they then said, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. You see, the apostles, they had called together the whole congregation, according to verse 2. That means they involved the entire church And coming up with a solution to this problem the Apostles understood that in order for them to fulfill the responsibilities that they were specifically commissioned to do they had to turn over this matter to someone else they realized as one commentator wrote they cannot and should not do everything in the church and that in order to not neglect the things that, they were spe- that were specifically their responsibility, they would have to trust the congregation to take care of some other things. But they didn't just involve the, other, the whole congregation. They didn't just involve the congregation. They enabled the congregation. Look at this. The apostles gave some specific directions to the church as to how they should go about resolving the situation. They told them how many men to choose, and they identified the qualifications that these men should meet. That means the apostles not only involved the congregation in the resolution process, but they equipped the congregation to complete the process. And equipping believers is part of the reason we have church leaders. Look at what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. It says that, and he, and that's a reference to Christ, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, which is another term for shepherds, and, and some as teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul indicates that the Lord has appointed people to these unique roles for the purpose of equipping the saints. Now, that could mean that the presence of those individuals who are in these roles, that provides the equipping of the the church for ministry. Or it could mean that the people appointed to these roles are being assigned the responsibility of equipping the saints. But either way, there's a correlation between the appointment of church leaders and the equipping of the saints. And that's what the apostles demonstrate here. They demonstrate an understanding of what their priority is, of what they've got to focus on, and then they turned over the other work to the congregation. You know, it's kind of weird as a preacher to stand up here and preach to the elders because they're also your employers. But we need to acknowledge what the responsibility of the leaders of the church is from time to time. They need to be reminded. They need to be encouraged. They need to be commended because it's not an easy task. And sometimes it can be very easy for them to lose sight of what comes first. Shepherding. But here's the thing. It's easy for me to stand up here and say, hey, you got a shepherd, and that means you're going to have to delegate. Because in order to delegate, you got to have workers. And that brings us to the fourth thing I want you to notice about the church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem congregation avoided a split because its members participated. When the apostles tasked the congregation to pick out from among you seven men, the congregation came through. Acts chapter 6 and verse 5 tells us that the apostles plan pleased the whole gathering of the church, and they chose seven men from whom they set before the apostles for their confirmation. See, the church didn't shy away from responsibility here. They didn't counter with excuses of not having time to help solve this issue or of being unqualified to help solve this issue. They didn't retort that they were doing the apostles' job for them. They simply did what was asked of them by the leaders of the church. Now, I just spent the previous point of this sermon expounding on what a congregation's shepherd should do, so it's only appropriate that I take a moment to expound on what a congregation's members should do. And I want you to notice two specific passages very quickly with me. The first is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. I referenced this a moment ago, but I want to read the entirety of it to you. It's instructions to members of the body of Christ. And it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Do you realize what that verse just said? It just said that shepherds are going to have to give an account for your souls. When you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, you're going to give an account for your soul. When a shepherd stands before the Lord on the day of judgment, they're going to give an account for their soul, and they're going to give an account for their shepherding. Like I said, it's a daunting task that's not for everyone. And you know what that means? That means as members, we should appreciate the men who are willing to be shepherds. Notice this verse, too. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 12 and 13. There we are given the instructions to respect those who labor among you and are over you and the Lord. And then we're also told to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So when you reflect back on Hebrews 13 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and these instructions that are given to the members of the body, these passages call for members to obey, to submit to, to respect, and to esteem the leaders of the church. In other words, these passages are a call for members of the body of Christ to appreciate the responsibility that Christ, the chief shepherd, has placed on each congregation's shepherds. And such appreciation culminates in participation. What I mean is that if you appreciate the fact that the primary responsibility of a church's leadership is to shepherd the flock of God, and you appreciate the fact that they are watching out for your soul as ones who will give an account, then you will be willing to step up and take on responsibilities that they shouldn't have to do. And before you jump on the that's why we have deacons bandwagon, you better take a close look at Ephesians chapter 4. We were just there a minute ago. But look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11 and 12 addresses the duty of of specific roles in the congregation, such as apostles and such as shepherds. But if you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 4, you'll come to verse 15 and verse 16. It says, We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love now that's a horrible run-on sentence and that makes it complicated to read and comprehend sometimes but what Paul says is that the whole body the body of Christ is held together by what every joint supplies what does that mean you That means that you, as a member of the body of Christ, are one of those joints. And I, as a member of the body of Christ, are one of those joints. If you are not, or I am not, supplying what we have to give, whether that be our skills, our talents, our abilities, our resources, our knowledge, our personalities, whatever it might be, then the body lacking see the point that paul's making in ephesians chapter 4 is that the success of the body is not just contingent on leaders doing their part it's also contingent on the members doing theirs and the part of the members is participation and contribution they are essential to the life of the church So when I look at Acts chapter 6, and I look at these six verses, and it's this beautiful description of a benevolence program that's helping those who are in the most helpless of states. I admire it, but I have a newfound appreciation for it because I see in it a context for avoiding a church split. And it boils down to this for me, that members have to speak They have to speak up when they see injustice. Leaders have to listen. Something is brought to their attention like that. If that can occur, many divisive, conflicting issues can be resolved. But on top of that, leaders have to have their focus on what God assigned them to do and them only to do. And that's shepherding the flock of God. But they can't fully do that if the body of Christ doesn't pull their weight, if the members don't step up and take responsibility for the things that shouldn't be on the plate of the shepherds. So what I want to ask you today is this. If you're a shepherd among us today, Are you focused on your primary task? Are you getting distracted with things that shouldn't be taking precedent? And if you're a member today, I want to ask you this. Are you appreciating the men who are keeping watch over your soul? And in that appreciation, are you doing what you can to allow them to focus on what they are supposed to be focused on. Maybe, maybe if we can allow our shepherds to give their undivided ship, attention to shepherding, maybe there'll be far fewer problems. Maybe there will be far fewer tensions and conflicts. Maybe there will be far fewer divisions in the church. This morning, I come at Acts 6 in a totally different way. I approach it, maybe I'm the only one that can see it this way. That's okay, that happens a lot with me. But maybe, just maybe, we find in Acts 6 a guide for strengthening the church and a guide for motivating us to do our part to keep the church strong. This morning as we gather here, and I know it's run late, but that's okay, you stayed up late. This morning as we gather here, maybe you're not a part of that body yet. Maybe you're not a part, maybe you're not a joint yet. Maybe your sins haven't been washed away by the blood of Christ. Well, guess what, right now, you have the opportunity to make that decision. You can be cleansed of your sins and you can be a part of the family of God right now. If you confess that Jesus Christ is the risen son of God, if you'll repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you're here today And you've made that decision. But you've never identified yourself with a particular body and brought yourself under the oversight of a particular group of shepherds. And so there's no one keeping watch over your soul. And maybe, maybe you need to do that. Well, I can tell you this. Our shepherds would love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're here today. And you are a member of the body of Christ and you've wandered away. You are that sheep who took off and these shepherds have been looking for you. And they've been concerned about you. They've been praying for you and they've been trying to reach out to you. Maybe today's the day that you need to make a decision to correct things so that you can be a part of the body again. Maybe you just realize that you're not doing your part. and you want to change that, then today is that opportunity. If you need to respond to the invitation for any reason today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.